So good morning. I hope uh, everyone here in the South Hills had a great Christmas, and I want to say good morning to all our campuses in Ross Straver, Robinson, Washington, Wilkinsburg, DeBerry, and all those joining online, good morning, and I hope you all had a great Christmas as well. As we uh, prepare to head into the new year, I want to remind you again, which we've been pushing the last few weeks, that in your bulletins, if you have your bulletin, there is a slip of paper that on the front says Church Engagement Survey. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, we did a church-wide survey. About uh, 1,300 of of our congregation across all our campuses gave some feedback of where they thought we were as a church, how we're doing. And we took all that feedback. And in addition, we also did an internal survey with our staff. We wanted to hear from our staff at all our campuses. And and now moving into the new year, uh, Ron next weekend is going to kick off a a five or six-part series based off the vision that the elders and leadership have, based off what we heard from you in multiple meetings with prayer and discussion of where we believe the church needs to head in the coming years. So next week, you'll be hearing those three goals that Ron's been talking about. But then we want to hear from you even more, because once you receive that, we want to spend some time at every campus hearing from you again. So on the back of that paper are three meetings here in the South Hills, uh, campuses, you're all meeting on the 20th, and I know the campus pastors have informed you on that, but here in the South Hills again, January 14th, that's an evening meeting, 6.30 to 8. January 15th is an early morning for those who work and want to come to a morning meeting, 7 to 8.30, and then January 20th, 12.30 to 2. Please come to one of those meetings. This is not a uh, leadership or just an elder's vision to move forward. We want this to be a a buy-in from the entire church. We want to hear from you as we press on into the new year. And then Ron's going to be talking about February 22nd, which is going to be a strategic session for the church together as we now implement those new goals. But we are excited for the days ahead of the Bible Chapel, and we thank you for all the input you've given us, and we encourage you to to come to those meetings to help us uh, finish the job as we move forward. So let's pray, uh, all our campuses together. Let's open up in prayer before we jump into God's word. Father, we we thank you for today, and and God, we, we thank you that once a week we can gather across all our campuses and worship the name of Jesus Christ. God, throughout the week, we are called to worship you at work, at home, in our communities. And what's unique about our church, which, which I love, is that all of our campuses are worshiping you and doing your work throughout the week. But then we get to come together on a Sunday morning to study the word of God, to be unified in your word. So Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would speak as only you can, Speak through me. So, Father, let the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. In Christ's name, amen. So at the University of Washington, they have a a research center called iLabs. That stands for the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences. iLabs focuses Uh, on trying to discover the core principles of human learning. They specifically focus uh, on children from birth to age five years old. And their, their whole point is through the worship from a baby is born till they reach that age of five, how can they reach their full potential? And one of the major ways that iLab says a child grows is through imitation. They say this, quote, 
Before babies talk, they imitate facial movements, vocalizations, body movements, and actions by objects, on objects. And between one and a one and a half years of age, a child will learn one to two new behaviors a day. Think about that. A one-year-old will start learning one to two new behaviors a day through copying the actions of other people. As they get older, their cognitive thought process starts to form, and they're always observing our behavior. And then iLabs says this. The phrase, lead by example, becomes extremely relevant at this time. It also becomes easier for children to follow a model's example. Parents, grandparents, uh, teachers, children's ministry volunteers, I think we've all had experience with this, right? Children learn through imitation. Uh, Kristen and I, uh, we have three children. Our youngest, Joel, is seven months old, and he's at that fun stage now where when we clap, guess what Joel does? He claps right with us. He imitates our movements. When our daughter, Faith, last year was two years old, Kristen and I will always remember, she walked right through the kitchen into the dining room with her little shoe on her ear, imitating mommy on the phone. <laughs> two years old, and she wanted to be like mom. This fall, our five-year-old Ezra, I didn't know he was doing this at first. I had my headphones on, hood up. I'm mowing the grass, and Ezra gets his little lawnmower out, and all of a sudden, he's following me. And uh, for 45 minutes, now I knew, I found out within a minute. It wasn't 45 minutes without me knowing. For 45 minutes, the whole lawn, he followed right behind Dad. Now, I can't wait till he can do it on his own, right? But... That was a special moment. Ezra wanted to imitate that. The power of imitation, right? The power of leading by example. That's been the focus of this series, this Christmas we've been doing. Unselfie Christmas, he, not me. Because there is no greater example to imitate than Jesus Christ. We've been following the life of Christ throughout Scripture, and we have seen throughout his unselfish leadership, his unselfish direction, his unselfish service. And last week with Ron, remember being heir of the towel? We saw that he is our unselfish model to follow. So as we close this series today, I want to ask you, how has studying the unselfish life of Jesus Christ changed you? How are you going to live more unselfishly in 2019 because of your imitation of the life of Jesus Christ? Today, we're going to switch gears a little bit and not so much look at Jesus, but look at an individual in Scripture whom, after trusting in Christ, went from a life of me to an absolute life of he, not me. He modeled an unselfish life for Jesus that we should imitate. His name is the Apostle Paul. You see, Paul in Scripture says that he viewed his life purpose as one to be that others could imitate. 
He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.16 that God had set him apart as, quote, an example for those who would believe in him, believe in Jesus. Paul saw his life in an unselfie fashion, that the way I live should be in a manner that would draw people into a relationship with Jesus Christ by seeing his change in me and as a model to follow. Paul was so confident in his life of unselfishness to Christ, he claimed this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. How confident are you today to say the same thing to those around you? How confident on the way you acted this week, the way you acted this month, the way you acted in 2018, that you could say to your children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, co-workers, neighbors, the next generation of the Bible chapel that is learning about Jesus upstairs here in the South Hills and learning at all of our campuses. How confident are we to tell the next generation, imitate us, just imitate us as we imitate Jesus Christ. The King James uses the word pattern in 1 Timothy to describe the life of Paul, that Paul is a pattern to follow. So that's where we're headed today. We're gonna look at a passage in scripture that we can look at, and it's Paul sharing his own testimony, that we can learn how can we imitate the pattern of Paul? If Paul's life is this this life stencil, how can we trace and imitate the pattern that Paul shows in order to live unselfishly for Jesus Christ in 2019? That's where we're headed this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. As you're turning there, let me set some brief context uh, to this letter that Paul wrote. So Paul visited Philippi on his second missionary journey, and most likely he wrote this letter about a decade after his visit. Now, Paul wrote this letter while being in prison in Rome. And even though Paul was physically in chains, throughout this letter, he proclaims freedom in Jesus Christ. If you read Philippians, every chapter, you either see the word joy or rejoice throughout the letter. Paul's aim was for the Philippians, who also faced persecution as the early church, that they would find their ultimate uh, source of strength and joy in Jesus Christ. So in chapter one, he first gives some personal reflections, including sharing how even through his imprisonment, God was using his ministry to advance the gospel. In Philippians chapter two, many of you know it, he gives that famous text challenging the Philippians to follow the humility of Christ, including, as we just celebrate with Christmas, the purpose of why Jesus came, to take on flesh, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty that you and I owed to redeem us from our sins, Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then we get to chapter three. Paul starts chapter three with the word finally. And like most preachers, that word finally means nothing. They keep going, right? So Paul says finally, but keeps going on for a few chapters. But the word finally really means to bring the focus. He's saying after what I just shared about my personal reflections, what I have shared about the model of Christ, finally I want to bring to focus what I'm trying to communicate to you believers in Philippi. 
And he sets for us a pattern in chapter three that I believe we should follow to live an unselfish life for Jesus Christ. So here we go. Look at verse one in Philippians chapter three. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Throughout uh, the, the letter to the Philippians, Paul has called them to rejoice, but this is the first time he uses the qualifier in the Lord. Paul is saying, man, when your joy is in the Lord, it's going to be independent then of your circumstances. No matter what you're going through, Philippians, the persecution, the trials of life, if you rejoice in the Lord, you're going to be safe. He says it's a safeguard for them. And it was a safeguard for them for certain groups of people who wanted to infiltrate the church to disrupt the unity of the church and to push false doctrine. Specifically here in chapter three, Paul addresses a group of legalistic Jews who were constantly antagonizing him in the early church. They, they went by this, this category name, the Judaizers. The word Judaizer comes from the Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. These legalistic Jews taught that in order to come to Christ, you first had to conform to the Mosaic law. You had to become a Jew. So if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, you must first become a Jew, then you could come to Christ, especially when it came to circumcision. They believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Their doctrine was a mixture of works through the law and grace through Christ. And Paul calls them out for who they are. He's warning the Philippians, watch out for this group. So look how harsh Paul gets in Philippians 3, verse 2. Look at verse 2. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul here describes the Judaizers using language typically they would have used on the Gentiles. They would often call the Gentiles dogs because dogs were considered unclean animals who fed on garbage. They, they weren't the cute puppies in our house today. That's not what the dogs were back then. They were these unclean scavengers. And Paul says, no, 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 you're the dogs. You're the one sitting outside the covenant blessings of Jesus Christ with your works-based righteousness. You're the dogs. And speaking of that circumcision thing that you say is necessary for salvation, he says, these guys are evildoers who mutilate the flesh. This would have been particularly scathing because the Greek word for mutilate is katatome, and it's actually a sarcastic play for the Greek word circumcision, paratome. Paul is saying those who believe that physical circumcision is necessary for salvation you're basically mutilating yourself. Jesus Christ has rendered physical circumcision unnecessary for salvation. And then Paul says, you know what? You know who are the true circumcision? True believers are those whom the Holy Spirit has opened up their heart inward. It's not external. It's the inward circumcision of the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision of the heart 
And if you're here and you're a believer, it has happened to you. It's when the Spirit of God enters the life of a dead sinner, circumcises your heart, cups open your heart, convicting you of your sin, realizing there's no way to a relationship with the living God except through Jesus Christ. And the circumcision is an inward faith in Jesus Christ. That's circumcision. It's not external. It's not some works-based thing. It's the inward cutting of the Holy Spirit in your life. Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. That means the law. His praise is not from man by all the things you do. No, your praise is from God through the circumcision of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in verse three, when this happens, we become worshipers of God by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God releases us from the bondage of self-righteousness, and we are now free to worship him because we glory and boast, not in ourselves, but now in Christ Jesus. We go from confidence in the flesh to confidence in Jesus Christ alone. Paul, next though, says, here's the thing about me. I used to be like you. Actually, not only that, if anyone could actually say like their self-righteous works gave them enough merit to enter the kingdom of God, I'd be the first in line. I would be the top of the class. Let me tell you about my self-righteous credentials. Look at verses four through six. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Good luck beating me. He says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his inheritance. I mean, before he even had to lift a finger, just hit his, who he was in his upbringing, good luck beating me. Then he gives three personal achievements. As to the law, I'm also a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. Let's look at these credentials of Paul. The first four are inherited. The next three are just his personal achievements. Paul says, all right, let's do this. Let's have a self-righteous competition. Number one, I'm an eight-dayer. I was circumcised on the Jewish eighth day in strict compliance with the Old Testament covenant, starting with Abraham, then in the Mosaic law. While many Judaizers were later converts to Judaism, he says, I'm an insider from birth. I'm an eight-dayer. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. More accurately, I'm of the race of Israel. Some of you, again, later converts to Judaism. But me, I can trace my ancestry all the way back to Abraham. It reminds me, my grandfather, Marcello, 100% Italian, he would meet some of my friends in high school, and they would say, Mr. Darris, I'm Italian too. And they would go on to share that they're 25% Italian, and he would look at me and go, they're not Italian. <laughs> it was 100%, or you're not Italian. Paul didn't have that problem when it came to being an Israelite. He was a pure-blooded Israelite all the way back to Abraham. 
Paul, uh, Paul also was a Benjaminite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Man, there's a lot of things that distinguished his tribe. For instance, the, the first king of Israel, King Saul, came from Benjamin. And when uh, the 12 tribes of Israel went in exile, it was only Benjamin who remained faithful to Judah. If you were a Benjaminite, man, you were considered of the distinguished tribe of Benjamin. And Paul says, that's me too. I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he gives one more, just his inherited self-righteous credentials. He says, I'm also a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is saying my parents were Hebrews and I'm a natural Hebrew, meaning while many uh, Jews who converted from uh, a converted Jew, they only spoke Greek. Paul spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. He spoke the native language of the Hebrews. He also, we learn in the book of Acts, learned from the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He was a private school Hebrew insider. So Paul says, look, if you just went based off who I am, good luck beating me. But he doesn't stop there. He gives three personal accomplishments. He says, I also earned my way to being an elite Pharisee. Phariseeism began when the Jews returned from exile. The word means separated one. And by the first century, they were the most respected and elite group in Judaism. They did not mess around with, with those who were unclean. Paul says, man, you talk about yourselves, Pharisee. I was an elite Pharisee. He also says, and here's the thing about a Pharisee, right? We say we're passionate about the law, but how many of us actually keep it? He says, when it came to keeping the law and fighting for the law, no one, no one can match my zeal. In the book of Acts, Paul is shown before he was used to be Saul, he is shown as the leader of the terror movement against the early church, right? When the stoning of Stephen happened in chapter 7 of Acts, Acts 8 verse 1 says that it was Saul, that's what Paul's name was, approved Stephen's execution. You want to talk about zeal? And he says, remember what I used to do? I used to go church to church. I go city to city, and I go after these Christians. Chapter 8 verse 3 says this about him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He says, man, if you want to talk about zeal, good luck trying to match mine. One more. And, again, you want to talk about keeping the law? Ask any of my former peers. I was blameless. He doesn't say I was sinless. He says, though, but keeping the law... No one could keep up with me. If you're a Philippian, and maybe you here, you might be reading this saying, okay, Paul, you just said in a uh, uh, statement earlier, right? Verse four, have no confidence in the flesh. And here you go. You're listing all these self-righteous credentials. What's the deal? Paul, why are you doing this? It seems like you're boasting about your credentials, how you could beat this group. Well, he explains why in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Man, that, that could be the theme of this series, he, not me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That word counted means considered 
or reflected upon. Paul says, when Jesus Christ entered my life, in Acts chapter 9, on that road to Damascus, when, he, when the circumcision of my heart happened, he uses accounting terminology, and the word gains here is in the plural. He says, I used to do this. I used to count all my righteous acts as individual merits of gain. Look at me. I'm on my way to the Lord. And he says, but when Jesus entered my life, I looked upon, I reflected upon all this stuff, and it became one singular loss because the righteousness was no longer about myself. Jesus Christ became my only credit for righteousness. It's like the person today who says, I have perfect church attendance. I don't get drunk. I don't swear. I work hard at work. I've never committed adultery as if those merits make you right with the living God. They do this when it comes to the standard that God requires. And Paul experienced that. It wasn't that being a Hebrew or a Benjaminite was bad in and of itself. The issue was in Paul's former eyes, they were means of reaching this righteous level with the living God and they prevented him from trusting in Jesus Christ alone as his Lord and Savior. That's why he says, see you later. When it comes to salvation, there is nothing, there is nothing I can do. None of this great stuff matters. It's all about what Jesus Christ did for me. And in verse uh, eight, he goes on to say this. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them now as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I love this. He gets very, very personal here. Here's what I mean. In chapter two, when Paul gives that example of Jesus as the ultimate humble servant, he ends with the climax statement in verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, that word means Messiah, Jesus Christ is God. To the glory of God. He says Jesus Christ is Lord. He makes that important theological truth that Jesus is the living God. He is God. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he takes that truth and makes it extremely personal. Go back to verse 8. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. What's he say now? My Lord. Paul says Jesus Christ is not only just he is God, he's my God. This is personal now. I thought I knew who God was. I was following all these things, but it was like I was trying to achieve something to some distant deity. But man, when I lost all things for Christ and he became my only one and credit for righteousness, he says, Jesus, he's my Lord. He's my savior. How many of you here today can claim that? I'm not asking you if you believe that Jesus is God. I've met a lot of people in Wilkinsburg, South Hills, six trips to Honduras, Kenya. They'll tell you, do you believe Jesus is God? Yeah, I believe Jesus is God. Is he your Lord? 
Have you trusted in him as the only way to relationship with the living God? Can you say he's my Lord? That's why Paul said you can take all these gains, throw them to the lost column, because Jesus is my Lord. He's mine. He's all I'm about. And I love verse 8 because the word counted in verse 7 was in the past tense, meaning everything before Christ. Now, I realize that didn't matter when it came to salvation. But in verse 8, it's in the present tense. Paul is saying this. And moving forward, anything that dares to try to compete with where Jesus is now at, good luck. It's like rubbish to me. That's the first century crude word for garbage. Is Paul saying that his Christian brothers and sisters are garbage or everything? No. But when it comes to competing with Christ in his life, it basically is. Jesus is my God. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And I'm never taking him off that mantle. That's where he is. And Paul says in verse 9, we're going to end in this section this morning. He says, and I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, look, my self-righteous days are done. They're done. My one focus is now the righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. We call this justification. When you stand before the living God one day, he's not going to add up your merits or even your faults and all your sins. He's going to look at you and see the righteousness of his son. You will be justified, declared not guilty, because of your faith in Christ's righteousness, not of your own. All right. Imitating the pattern of Paul. To close, I want to look at three areas we can observe from this text where Paul gives his testimony. What are three ways that we can imitate the pattern of Paul to live an unselfish life for Jesus in 2019? And remember, this is not just for us. What pattern are we leaving the next generation to follow? Here's the first one. Imitate the pattern of Paul by setting unselfish priorities. It was no question that knowing Christ Jesus was Paul's number one priority in his life. Go back to verse eight. We probably could just did the whole sermon from this part of this verse. Indeed, I count, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This word knowing means a more perfect understanding, not just for head knowledge. You can debate eschatology at Starbucks or whatever you want to do. It's not head knowledge. It means a knowing, a more perfect understanding for right living. Here, here, here's what Paul is saying. He's like, I want to pursue Jesus. There's nothing worth more than knowing Jesus so I can obey Jesus. I want to know him so I can obey him. I want him to take over my life. I, it's not about Paul's dreams anymore. It's not about Paul's plans anymore. It's not about Paul's desires anymore. It's about Jesus Christ alone. And I want to know him so he changes me. That's my number one priority. If something is our number one priority, we schedule it, we plan it, we let nothing interfere with it. You know, today the Steelers play at 4.30, right? There'll be a lot of people who make that a priority, right? 
other things they could do, but they'll forego to watch that game. And sadly, you'll have to also watch the Browns and Ravens because the Browns have to win. That's pretty sad. But if something's a priority in your life, you're going to do whatever you take to make sure it happens every day. Here's what I'm saying. You know, 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. 80% fail by the second week of February. Why is that? Well, most people say it's just a statement with no plan. Don't just say, I'm going to make being in God's word a priority in 2019. If it's your number one priority, make a plan this week. How is this going to happen? Is it on your schedule? Carved out on your iPhone, whatever it is. 7.30 to 7.45, God's word and prayer. And there's nothing that's going to shake that. That is your number one priority. We have tried to uh, offer to equip you all. Um, if you want in your bulletin, there's the journey through the gospel that Ron is starting January 1st. All you got to do is fill out that slip, rip it off, put it at the info desk, and you'll get an email to start following that every single day. It will pop up on your phone. But whatever manner you choose, plan it out and make a commitment following the pattern of Paul that being in God's word to know Christ in order to obey Christ is your number one priority. Here's the second one. Imitate the pattern of Paul by having an unselfish identity in 2019. Keep your identity rooted in Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Paul says his aim is to be found in Jesus. Well, that's first a positional statement. When it comes to his eternity, when it comes to his salvation, he is positionally in Christ. He's eternally secure. But you know what? For Paul, that was a practical statement as well. If you watched his life, the way he lived, he was in Jesus. There was no question of where his identity resided. Because here's the deal. We all know things are going to pop up this year. Some we planned and some we didn't. And there are going to be areas in your life that are going to compete for your identity, to put your trust in them, to put your hope in them. For some of you, it might be a job, maybe a title you're pursuing or maybe work you're pursuing, and that can quickly become an idol. It can become your identity. Teenagers, single adults, sometimes it can be a relationship. That person, that boyfriend or girlfriend who quickly becomes who you are. For some, it's a, a bank account number. It's financial security, that level you need to hit. I want to be there. That's who I want to be. Facebook likes, right? Instagram, social media. There are so many. You know, some of these things are great. You should value and thank God for, but nothing this year can compete with your identity in Jesus Christ. He alone defines who you are. You know what I love about Paul's example? You cannot find someone who was more messed up than Paul. He was persecuting the church, imprisoning Christians. And when Jesus Christ changed his life, he no longer saw who he was with his past. It was all about who he is in Christ. When Paul brought up his past, it wasn't in a way like, oh, I can't believe who I was. He used it as a witness for Christ. If you're here today and people still want to bring up your past or you're still struggling with the past, let it go in Christ. You're a new creation in him. He defines who you are. 
As Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Jesus Christ in God. I'll be honest, this has been convicting to me all week. Not perception, the way I actually live, would those around me say that my identity is in Jesus Christ alone? I love Kristen. I love being her husband. I love our kids, Ezra, Faith, and Joel, and I'm honored to be their dad. I am humbled to to serve the Bible chapel. I love the Bible chapel and serving this church. But man, I hope when people identify me, they'll say deep down, who's Dave? He's a follower of Jesus. There is no doubt that guy's identity is in Jesus Christ alone. Would those say that about us? How are you going to model where your identity is in 2019? One more. Together, let's imitate the pattern of Paul by being an unselfish church in 2019. Here's the thing. Paul, at the end of this chapter, gives an amazing charge to the Philippians. Many of you are probably familiar with it, and I wish we could go through it. We don't have time. And in it, he says things like, press on, strain forward, hold on to this calling you have in Christ Jesus. And he tells them to do this not on their own, but together. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is encouraging them to be in Christian community. Don't just imitate me because I'm going to leave. I'm gone. Surround yourself with other resolute followers of Christ that you can model and also that you could influence with your life. You see, people sometimes think Paul was some lone ranger. He wasn't. He was connected to the body of Christ. In chapter two, he says this of two brothers. He says of Timothy, quote, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He says this about Epaphroditus in chapter two. He's my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. The pattern of Paul is to have believers in your corner and you unselfishly to be in their corner as well. We talk about selfies, right? You take a selfie. If you're the only person in your Christian circle, that is a sad image. That is a sad image. Because here's the deal. Who's going to keep you accountable to be in God's word every day? Who's going to, who are you going to get with this week and say, hey, can you keep, every week, can you give me a text or call and say, hey, are you in God's word every day? Are you in prayer every day? When you're struggling in March at work because you got a deadline, this project is crushing you, you have someone in your corner who says, hey, I know that project's important, but no matter how it turns out, it doesn't define who you are. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. And when you're stuck in sin, you have someone who loves you enough to call you out, to get you back on track with the he, not me calling that God has put on your life. This journey to imitate the pattern of Paul is never meant to be lived alone. So here's the deal. The next generation is observing us. The next generation is learning from us. And most likely, research says, the next generation is going to imitate us. What are we showing them? Will we model unselfish priorities. It's the young man in college who wakes up in God's word every morning 
And his roommate's like, dude, what are you doing? Why do you do that every morning? He smiles and says, you know what, I'm not sure when I started, but I remember in junior high, I would go downstairs before school, and my dad would be reading the Bible every day in his chair. And I just started doing the same thing. Well, we model unselfish identity. The young student teacher who's going through her bumps and bruises of her first year in the classroom. And in the teacher's lounge, the veteran teachers, they're marveling at her resolve and work ethic. But what they don't know is she is simply imitating the work ethic of her grandmother who modeled for her and always told her, sweetie, I want you to pursue your dreams, but in that pursuit, keep your identity in Jesus. He defines who you are. Will we be an unselfish church? Will one day the children and teenagers in DeBerry in Washington, in Wilkinsburg, in Ross Chaver Robinson, and here in the South Hills, will they grow up not just being taught about Jesus, but with an example to imitate by the way we conduct ourselves as the church, the way we support one another, the way we serve one another, the way we challenge one another. And the next generation of the Bible Chapel will be well prepared to carry on our vision to develop followers of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to close with a song at all our campuses. We're all going to be singing this, this same hymn. And I want to challenge us. You know, we sing words, and sometimes I wonder, do we actually know what we're saying right now? Do we actually mean what we are saying right now? If you're going to sing these words, and my question for you this morning is, do you mean them? I find my strength... I find my hope, I find my help in Christ alone. When fear assails, when, when darkness falls, I find my peace in Christ alone. And here's the biggie. Do you mean this? I give my life. Come on. I give my life. I give my all to sing this song in Christ alone. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of all. All heaven sings to Christ alone. And look, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Till he returns or he calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. For 2019, man, here in the power of Jesus Christ, we will stand. Stand as we sing. We're going to invite the worship leaders at the campuses to lead.